Twitter. Why, why do we make this so hard? I know that you can't like uh, you can't talk and type at the same time. You really can't talk and type <laughs> at the same time. And here we go. This reminds me of these. We used to Brian and I used to give these presentations uh, where it, there would always be live demos, and one of us would talk and the other would type. And um, inevitably, when the person typing tried to talk, they would start typing the thing that they were saying, uh, which was always kind of entertaining. Yes. Well, there are some terrifying variants of that. I mean, I, I, I believe I have shared with you my terrific fear. That I observed that when sending an email or engage in work correspondence and my family enters the room, <laughs> I am likely to sign things, love, Brian. And I... And I <laughs> I mean, I have tried to like preemptively let people know that if I will never profess my love to you in a work email, like that's not the way it's going to go down. So, oh well, I, you know, I'm just going to delete that whole thing. Yeah, file. would you mind? So this is like, what could you please delete that? Actually, I do. Before we get to Arian, I do have a funny story for you, Adam, because I feel that you and I both have plenty of Abe Simpsons isms that we oh, have. Yeah, yeah we, that we have incorporated. Well, so we are aging, and. I am, these things are so deep in my own vocabulary, I don't really keep track of them anymore. Like, could you say conclusively what references you do or do not make and how casually you do or do not make them? I do know that in mixed company, I'll say things like Cod Sarnet, which is not not an expression that has any currency for anyone who is not well acquainted with Abe Simpson. So these folks who aren't like I'm, this is I'm, I'm I'm exposing too much. This is I'll say this when I'm playing pickleball, which oh with, like, legi- with like legitimate septuagenarians, and they're like, look, at, listen to this old timer. This guy is showing us how to do it. This guy, yeah. I finally someone else born in 1952. <laughs> so I uh, we had a dilemma over the weekend. And at one point, my 14-year-old looks at me and says, did you just say there's an onion in the ointment? And I'm like, <laughs> did I say there's an onion in the ointment? He's like, is that an expression? I'm like, no, that's actually, that's a Simpsons reference. And I am no longer cognizant of when I'm doing this. And so now I, like, I am becoming, we are becoming Abe Simpson. We are an entire generation that is becoming Abe Simpson. I'm, anyway, I'm worried. That's no, I'm with you, and I surround myself with people who would only accept those references. So yes, it's, it's troubling. But but the children, what do you? I mean, I, and honestly, like I, you cannot. Ask, my 14 year old, God love him, be Cantrell number one fan has poured over the Simpsons like a Talmudic scholar. You cannot expect a 14 year old to know early season Simpsons better than he does, and he missed it as a reference. It's it's chilling. It's chilling. Chilling, chilling in the beer. Exactly. In the beer. <laughs> On that note. Um, so yeah, so we're uh, Arian. You had this uh, this tweet. Well, of course, the tweet represents. Uh, there's a lot of work that we're going to talk about underneath it uh, that the, that the tweet represents. But an absolutely gorgeous image of the board that you've been designing um, here at Oxide. So uh, I thought actually maybe we would work backwards a bit, um, and maybe you could describe the like what people are seeing with that image like what, what, what the image actually means oh sure so i got a bit inspired by some of these um by some of these die shots you'll see people take photos of, of old chips and uh I try to do the best i can do with <laughs> with what i'm doing but what you're seeing is uh the the signal the copper layers in the circuit board so this is a 
printed circuit board made of fiberglass with, with, with thin uh, copper layers in, in the middle. Um, and so what you're seeing is about 12 of these copper layers that where all the signal traces and the power pores are uh, all stacked on top of each other and then rendered as a single image. And I mean, so, and what are the colors to note? Because I think, I mean, it, it, it's, the colors are obviously synthetic, but what, what do the different colors denote? Well, roughly the, the different colors are for the different layers so that you can recognize as, as you're designing a PCB like this, it's, it's, quick, it's pretty easy to lose track of what, what's where. Um, so all the layers have sort of names. You try to stick things, things get selected and added or, or put on specific layers where you need them. And then you use these colors to sort of to keep track of that. So when you look at the image, for example, you'll see a bunch of, uh, uh, I don't know, like magenta bluish stuff. That's, for example, a particular layer. So that's all the same layer. So when you turn that layer on or off, so you make it visible or not visible because you don't have these layers on all the time while you're working because it, it obstructs things from view, um, you know which layers are on and off based on these colors. Now, at some point when this board was designed, we added various uh, other colors to uh, basically show groups of signals so that you can quickly see which signals belong to the same sort of link or same class or same group and those might have different colors from the particular layer that they're on and are you what software are you using as you're designing and rendering this image so this was all done in in allegro pcb designer from uh our friend and music cadence. <laughs> right, so from, the, from the only software company that makes the software. Yeah. <laughs> it all goes back to cadence. Uh, yeah, so what you're seeing here is just the board view rendered like in the tool as you're working on it. So uh, this, is a, this is a CAD program that renders all that, all that output to an, sort of an OpenGL canvas. So it's, it's like, a, you know, like a video game engine, if you will. It's just in 2D. Um, and uh, this, this was just so happened to be a screenshot of that, of that render as we were working on it. So it's a gorgeous image, and I think you know a bunch of us had the same reaction internally. Uh, you just, just aesthetically, it is beautiful. It also just it reminds me of the things that I always loved as a kid, of like those really the complicated like like the London Underground maps, or I mean, it just it, it kind of invites you in to ask questions about the, like what am I looking at? This is a, like I'm amazed, and I don't even know why. Like I want to know. Uh, I don't know, Adam, if you had the same reaction. I mean, clearly we have a lot of context on this, but um, I, I feel that it is. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, and you more than I, but yeah, same reaction and actually um, had the same reaction or, or uh, a sense of that same thing. I you know, was disassembling a piece of hardware, like an old coffee maker and pulled out a PCB and showed it to my four-year-old this weekend. And there's something sort of intrinsically fascinating about the routing of these things and all the more so on, on the thing of this complexity. It is amazing, and I've asked in the past for the, a like. The, I feel like the definitive history of the PCB has yet to be written, or at least I haven't found it, um, because to me it is just the whole thing is mesmerizing. It is so complicated. It is it is so astounding, and it's so important. I mean, so much of what we have done rests on the the PCB and our ability to get this dense integration. So, are you, maybe you could take us back to the beginning. So, this is the, kind of the the uh, the end or a way station anyway, and kind of the sidecar journey. And do you want to take us back to because uh, you you are uh, the the first person that I didn't know prior to Oxide to join Oxide. 
Um, so you were in the absolute earliest days, and I think you and I both uh, really fondly remember that day that you came up to Oxide, like moments after we'd started. Um, but maybe you could take us from there. Yeah, so uh, I think it was a Friday. must have been a Friday, I think. Um, you invited me to come check out the uh, what is now the Oxide office, which was then an, an empty space, not even a chair. Um, and uh, we just stood around for, for, I don't know, one or two hours to talk, which was my, I guess, sort of informal interview, um, with a more formal engagement the week after when there was actually a couch to sit on, <laughs> which was, which was fun. Um, but yeah, we went from there. I mean, the, the, the vision for Oxide was, was, well, was pretty clear it was uh, you, Jess and Steve were able to communicate that well and, you know, Robert Mustaki was already there and, and uh, Josh and, and Dave. And so um, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty obvious from the beginning that to me, at least that there was going to be some really interesting stuff that was going to, that was going to happen. Think, uh, interesting things that we were going to build. And uh, in this, those early days, we didn't even uh, focus on a whole system. We were or at least I was pretty focused on the root of trust and how do we even land something to where we can start reasoning about code and how to measure integrity of the system. And, um, and I, uh, like just even just a small piece. And I, I remember thinking and actually saying out loud, Oh, well, the switch is, you know, we're going to do an integrated switch. That's fine. We can just, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to leverage something more or less off the shelf and customize <laughs> right. it. And I, uh, there, there's there are a few things in the in my recent history that I've regretted saying more than that. You know, it, I, these self delusions are important, though. You these self delusions has to go forward at key junctures. And, and just because it might not be obvious, like the 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 image that we're looking at is Aryan's design for this this switch, which was no big deal, you know, well, uh, it, almost two years ago. Well, wait, yes, because this is this is a completely custom thing. This is not. Like sure, the silicon we're using here is off the shelf. You can go and purchase this. You know, the the the, the big switch ASIC is the thing that Intel makes, and then there's a smaller thing that comes from MicroSemi or Microchip. And there's a, there's it's it's all off the shelf components. So there's there's no necessarily real magic. There are cost, anything real custom here, but the the integration of these components and how it how it connects all systems in the rack and how it sort of pulls the whole thing together, um, or at least we hope it will pull things together <laughs> right, uh, exactly. as, as, right. as a single man, like a single management domain that allows you to, you know, exercise the control that we need over each component in the rack. Um, that is, that is not done. And it's actually in the conversations with other, other individuals uh, from various companies, if I describe what we're building, then inevitably what, what, what shows up is like, Oh, this is actually the entire rack is actually more like a, like in like a like a, one of those large routers or switches that are that is built by you know the companies like Cisco etc that have these blades in them that need to be managed separate and that have you know a main data plane and a control plane and uh, usually an even a third line where you can turn power on and off etc and this this is this very much represents that same sort of idea except that it's you know in a large chassis on its own um, rather than in a in a blade like what Cisco does. And, or... and I'm trying to even, even trying to remember, because I, I definitely feel that like we were 
not sure whether we wanted to integrate a switch or not. I mean, clearly it, it, it's like taking on a bunch more work. And I think by the time that you had joined us, we were like even still not certain, like pretty sure we wanted to do our own switch, but not really sure what that meant at all, I think. And certainly had not thought about it concretely. No, initially that was very, it was very much, the idea would, would have been to more or less still use something off or something that would resemble a switch that you can purchase off the shelf, like a, you know, one to two U box with a CPU in there and a switch ASIC, very, very much like these wide label switch chassis that you can purchase from, from various vendors that, that the hyperscalers have made so popular. Um, and it wasn't really until we started thinking about, until we needed to add a management network where it became obvious that, hey, we want to do more integrated cabling. And then if, you, if we, we, wanna, we don't want to add a management switch separate to this whole thing, that was one, that was one sort of avenue where, we, where this started to arise. And then the other part was we spent all this time working on this root of trust and this, and this attested boot flow to get into, um, into host software that, that where we have some, some certainty or some assurance that it is booting the thing that you wanted to boot. And these existing switch chassis all have CPUs in them that were not the ones that we were going to use for a compute node. And so we would have had to replicate all that work for yet another CPU. And that seemed silly. So we came up with this idea, or in this case, it was actually Keith, I think, who started this idea of like, let's make this an external PCI Express device. And basically, this became a, a PCI Express peripheral, which it technically is in all <laughs> these other cases too, except that we're making it explicit using a cable. So we connect to one of the compute nodes. And so when we started going down that route where it was like, okay, we're going to have this thing externally connected using an external PCI Express connector to one of our existing compute nodes. Now we're off in La La Land and we're building something ourselves because no one is, <laughs> no one is doing this. No, no, it, it turned out that Google had done this in the past and Google had done it successfully. And that's what, that's, that gave us the, 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 the confidence that we could go and do it as well, that it wasn't totally crazy, but it was definitely not anything that anyone had, making off-the-shelf systems had seen and that put a square uh, on us to go and build a custom a custom chassis for this. Yeah, and I, I remember it also, that's the only way I remember it too, but I remember in particular thinking like we're putting all this work into the root of trust and then what we're going to like just throw down some like piece of crap, you know, old um, off-roadmap x86 part that, and it was, by the way, was always Intel. Um, and we knew that we wanted to have uh, AMD-based designs, um, and it just felt like it was going to be going backwards to be using these reference designs uh, for for the switch. And so, yes, as you say, it's like by the time we, you know, we thought we were going to do like these little tweaks. I, I kept, you know, Arian, you regret. Uh, deluding yourself to think of this. I regret using the verb. I, I overuse the verb tweak. Like we're going to tweak existing designs. It's like, yeah, no, no pal, you're not tweaking. Well, existing I, designs. I remember some, <laughs> I remember some of the conversations we had with, with some, some vendors or some manufacturers of existing systems trying to see if we could leverage some of their designs or like license something and then modify it or and 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 as soon as we started talking about what it is that we wanted <laughs> well we we want we want to remove the bmc and you just see people look across the table and be like you're 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 crazy that that just like nullifies half the design and it turns out that's true um and so we we yeah we very quickly found out that once you start to remove some of these critical components that these boards are built around 
then you're kind of on your own doing a semi-custom thing anyway, so you might as well just bite the bullet and go do it <laughs> just, like, just... actually the way you want Right, it. yeah. And then, so, right, so then you should describe, because I feel that like another key moment in this story is is Intel Tofino and really appreciating that part. Because I think we, uh, we just didn't know, I didn't know very much about switching silicon. Of course, there's basically Broadcom is the dominant company by far. Um, but as we, I mean, are you, maybe we should describe that process a little bit in terms of looking for yeah, parts. Yeah, I also didn't know a whole lot about switching silicon. Uh, I, I, during my time at Facebook, I interacted with the individuals working on, on Broadcom chipsets. And um, the only thing I remember from that, or the thing that I vividly remember from that, was that it was rather painful. And that people were not necessarily happy with what they were building. Um, did not spark joy. So, so it did not spark joy, no. And it, 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 their SDK is this, is this giant thing that, that is, is is a little difficult to get through. Now, it turns out that the Tofino one is also pretty sizable. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, we, we we had conversations with Intel early on. And, and um, they were... Well, so we we had a we had a, a, an entire day actually at Intel where several of the business units came together and pitched several things to us in in an attempt to you know persuade us to use these components, and and the Barefoot team, which had just been acquired by Intel a couple of months prior to that, um, came in rather late. I think it was somewhere in the, towards the end of the afternoon, um, but they did a really compelling presentation about the Tofino. Basic and then particular to Fino Two, which brings a bunch of uh, uh, refinement and a bunch of fixes from from the first generation. And I remember us all walking away. Huh, this is super interesting. We should look into this a little bit more. We should see if this is a viable part for us to use. Um, and so quickly for for uh, everyone who is like who does not necessarily know anything about Switch ASICs, uh, and I mean that in a good way. What makes Tofino interesting is that normally when you buy a chip from from Broadcom, most of the designs from Broadcom and others are what they call fixed function ASICs. So they they pre-design these these chips and they have functional units that allow you to you know process networking packets in a in, according to their design. Um, and but they pre-design that so they decide how large certain tables are they decide how what hardware is exactly available what kind of operations you can do on these on these uh on these network streams like oh you want to do some kind of tunneling or encapsulation well then you better hope that whatever it is that you want to do is supported by this asic because otherwise the asic can't do it for you and what makes the pheno interesting is that it is a it is a programmable somewhat flexible device and so you can parse packets in a, in a in a structured way using a using using a specific programming language they designed for this, and then the the ASIC can be configured to be you can tailor it to your application. And so if you want to emphasize a certain application, if you want to emphasize a certain thing that you you need out of your switch ASIC, for example, you want to maintain a large number of tunnels and, and encapsulate and decapsulate packets. Um, and you but you have no use for let's say uh, VPN functionality or, or, or whatever, like that might be slightly, even though those are still tunnels, you might want to do different type of, types of tunnels. You can repurpose that, that silicon that is, uh, or you can, do, you can dedicate the silicon that is available to you to whatever it is that you need in your application. And um, whereas in, in, a, in a fixed function ASIC, that silicon would be turned off. It would, it would not be used and that would be 
you know, it's kind of a waste of the of the budget of what you're paying for. Uh, and, um, and the language is standardized, right? P4 is is not it exists beyond just Intel Divino. Correct. There's a consortium around that, and and it is all initiated by by the barefoot folks. But it is an open language, an open uh, it's an open thing that everyone can anyone can collaborate in. And there are actually already several implementations uh, that can use this language to describe these these switching or data flow applications. Um, and you can even use it in, for example, the Linux kernel. There's a BPF implementation that will allow you to implement a data path using using the P4 language so you can describe how a packet should be parsed and how it should be processed and then how it needs to come out on the other end. Uh, and you can use that in, on, a, on a Linux machine. And so you can go and build your own ASIC if you wanted to and you could be in, in line with this with this language. Now I should mention that, that Broadcom has a similar type ASIC that is also more programmable than their other offerings. Um, but it is with their own, in their own language, in their own their own environment. Um, and uh, when we were talking with them briefly, uh, they were not, for some reason, not very keen <laughs> right. to sell us that. Well, and I, I do feel you're the first person at Oxide to coin uh, willingness to get weird. Um, and and we, Broadcom was not willing to get weird. And we, we were looking for partners that were looking to get weird a little bit, like willing to get weird anyway. Yeah, they, they, they definitely did not want us to go and build our own hardware. They, they basically told us to go and, and work with one of their board integration partners um, because they did not, did not have resources or did not want to spend resources on us. And, and when we started asking some more involved technical questions, the first thing that basically showed up was, well... We can start answering these questions for you, but can you please open a line of credit so that we can right. we, that we can bill some engineering hours to you? Um, and it feel I mean, it feels like very on brand for them, and just like yeah, there was no. It's like okay, I, is am I being is this the shakedown right now? Um, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to hate on them too much at the same time, but it was it was very clear that that the, the team at Barefoot was much more eager to uh, to you know show us what this thing was capable of to help us get this design done and, uh, and across the finish line and it is very i feel that the the the, dev the device in, in itself like the asic itself is just more in line with what we want to do at oxide and and so totally um it was it was just overall a better choice for well, it just a shared zeitgeist too around kind of the software controlled data center and i mean just it, it, it seemed like we had a lot in common there in terms of what our vision was so we were not looking at them as just like a different broadcom we were looking at them as like really being able to leverage some of the the novel uh the novel bits of the part yes because we haven't really been able to do any of anything with that yet but i i for one am I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm I'm looking forward to having some breathing room and actually be able to <laughs> spend, spend some time with the with the with their SDA SDAE and and, the, and their compiler etc. Um, to come up with with some interesting applications that we can use these switches for because we can use them as load balancers we can use them as tunnel endpoints we can use them for I mean I've seen a demo application in P4 where the switch is used as a as a high performance DNS server where if you if you yeah, send it the DNS packet they can de it can it can just deencapsulate the DNS request and it it has a lookup table and you can send out the results and so you can use it as a key value store there's some really interesting ideas that you can build with this thing and it can be done at line rate which, which means that you can send you know 100 gigabits per second of DNS requests or the DNS responses if you wanted to um now, for many of our, our like, I don't know how 
it'll be interesting to see where that is going to go in practice. But but if there if there happens to be a particular use case that our future customers want to want to want to do, like uh, or maybe a particular vertical that we end up selling into that have particular needs, then we can try and address that using this hardware, which which I think is 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 a is a neat idea that we can after the fact change what this can do and how how it accelerates the network. It's really cool. Sorry, yeah, I, a question, is, uh, no question. Question about the hardware. So, also, um, I, I see a bunch of folks who've joined as speakers. If you could just like raise your hand or something to indicate if you want to ask a question. But are, are you real quick? Um, all the hardware folks at Oxide, when we talk about Tofino two, say you know it's a beast or something similar. What, what yeah. makes like? And, and I've heard some descriptions of it, but what makes this chip a beast? Well, I mean, this is this is. This is not necessarily unique to Tofino. I think if you go look at some of the other networking ASICs out there, you'll see similar specifications, although most of them are behind NDA, so you can't really see them. But what makes this thing a beast is that it is it is a large it's a large device. It's a it's a six centimeter squared package with five dies on it. So if you if you're so it's a packet processing die that's that's barefoot's unique stuff, and then there's a thirty a bunch of thirty pieces around that. That get the packets in and out of this device, similar to what AMD does with multiple chiplets. This this thing has five of these chiplets on there, um, so it's a large it's a large device physical physically, and then it has these crazy power requirements yeah. to power this thing. Uh, in the in the thread, I, I alluded to that the, the core vol- the core rail to power the packet processing pipeline can draw as much as 500 amps at you know. 850 millivolts and it has it has this ridiculous 250 amp load step in in a in a microsecond uh and it it, 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 it can tolerate so, very little droop so it, you need to you need to design a serious power supply for this thing to operate correct. so am i correct in assuming that these little blue bars to the north and south of the tofino are power supplies every single one of them yep yep those are there's there's 20 power stages for just that core rail and then there's a couple of other ones sprinkled alongside them for the 30s but yeah this is a design that can deliver about 600 amps with a 300 amp load step nice yeah simian did you do you have something yeah, I want to ask a question about P4. So, uh, is is the plan to build a P4-based pipeline for the, for the oxide switch? Um, and and you know, is is that uh, is that sort of the way that you will you will provide these novel features? Is to is to provide a software upgrade where you're effectively replacing the pipeline? Yeah, that that would be one. That would be the way that we would do that. Um, so initially, the, the the first product we will release will have a switch implementation written in this P4 language and with a control plane attached to it. Um, and the customers won't necessarily see anything of this yet. Um, it will just operate as a switch. Network will flow, yeah, as they would expect. Um, and over time, as we start to understand the use cases that that these are going to be used for, and as we start to understand our capabilities here, we might add features to this. Uh, you know, hardware accelerated firewalls, hardware accelerated load balancers, um, uh, various tunneling and encapsulation features that we can implement. Um, and who knows what we what we in the process of working with this thing, what we can what we can unlock. Um, 
I can imagine that if you are a media company and you're looking to stream, I don't know, you're looking to stream video or something and you want to use load balancers, then having a hardware accelerated load balancer would be a, a quite an appealing feature. Uh, and so we might, we might put some time into building an application and then deploy either custom P4, like, but we might have different P4 programs for different customer needs or different sort of verticals. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if we would do per customer specific things that that seems expensive and time consuming because you would have to test all these permutations, etc. This is what this becomes a bit of an interesting delivery problem. But th there, there are some at least the the opportunities there. So we'll have to figure out what this is going to look like. Do you have the ability to slice that that switch up to say, okay, we're going to do ordinary switching? On these ports and load balancing on others, or is it a all or nothing proposition? Like this is the oxide rack for firewalling. No, you can you can mix and match these applications as long as you have the, the resources in in the switch available, um, and so you can allocate to. So the a little bit more detail about how this thing works. There's there's four packet processing pipelines in this in this chip. Um, meaning that you can you can process four things in parallel, uh, but these things are pipelines. So the, uh, each each of these pipelines is cons consists of twenty stages, um, and so at any point in time, there's there's twenty packets in each, uh, or there could be twenty packets in each pipeline. So you're working on four, forty packets in, in parallel. Um, and each of these match action units, or these stages, as they call these, these stages are called match action units. Um, they can op they can do a different operation on this packet, um, and so you can decide how you want to allocate these these this, this program. What you that does come in a proposition where it only runs one program. So you 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 write one P four program, you compile it. And then it you know it synthesizes it into somewhat like a bitstream, what you would see in an FPGA, uh, and then it loads that into the, into the device. So you can't really slice these and make sort of virtual things out of them. That that is is unfortunately not possible. Who knows? It might have at some point that might occur. But um, so we would we would deploy you deploy one program per switch. So whatever we do there, we need to. It needs to be decided up front what that program looks like, and if there's multiple use cases served by that program, that's okay. But we need to we need to know what that looks like. I think it's worth mentioning too that you know our belief is that we are that this hardware that we're building is going to last for a really long time, and so the, giving us and our customers software flexibility to do interesting things on top of it is really interesting. And so we just feel like there's a lot of potential here to go in a bunch of different directions. Um, and I think the other thing we're finding is that like the degree to which uh, this, this is a real pain point, and not surprisingly, it's a real pain point for those folks deploying on-prem infrastructure that they, and of course, it was, it, I, I don't know why that's surprising because it's been a pain point for me historically too, because you can't see inside the switch and there's so much of your performance issues and your reliability issues emanate from that. Well, yeah, so so touching on the first bit, this thing definitely has a lot of horsepower. For a rack switch, it might be even a little bit overpowered, but um, hey, like we, we, we can get access to this thing and it's, 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 we think it's worth it. Um, in, so why do I say it's overpowered? Like, well, we have 32 servers in the back or in the rack, and then so we need 32 connections to these servers, but then we also have 32 ports out the front, which is very unusual. Usually a rack switch has something like 
four uplinks or maybe eight uplinks. Well, we happen to have 32 because the ASIC came with 32 additional ports, so we might as well expose them. Um, this does lead to some interesting things where we can, for example, build small clusters for like customers will be able to build small clusters in a pretty with a pretty dense fabric, and so we can uh, we can reach really interesting oversubscription ratios all the way up to one to one, which is that's pretty unique. That, that there's not a lot of folks who do that. I don't think that anyone would do that bit because it's very costly in terms of uh, trans- optical transceivers and, and fiber to make that happen, but. It could if 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 you read really need all that network bandwidth, it is available to you. Um, so, but because one of the things that our customers said is like, well, m- just make the network go away from a p- performance point of view. Just make it go, make it be so fast that we just that it is that it is basically an, a, a resource that we just have will have enough of. Okay, well, but, but you know, then then we're going to give you a lot, but that, and then but the assumption is that we can that it will last for a bit. Um, so there's that, and then the other thing that that is really interesting that makes it, that driven by this programmable bit is that there are some standards now or some conventions starting to originate or appear that um, allow you to tag on extra data onto packets um, to do all sorts of interesting telemetry, and so we can do tracing through the network um, where we can tag on how long certain hops have. Le- uh, ha- how long it took for certain hops to to traverse um, because we can insert relatively cheaply data into these packets and so we will be able to or or the hope is that we will be able to or the expectation rather is that we will be able to build interesting telemetry and more in-depth um, um, you know ability to troubleshoot the, the network and determine well, first of all, you can see which path the packet has taken, which is an interesting, which is already a first interesting thing. And then from there, you can distill all sorts of additional information um, that might be of value when you try and build high-performance network applications. So, I you want to talk a little bit about how, I mean, you, you mentioned it a bit in passing about kind of the ports that you, we've got towards the cable backplane and then into the customer's network. Um, do you want to talk about, I mean, there were a couple of big design decisions early that I know were um, were involved. I don't know if you want to hit on any of those. Yeah, I mean the biggest design decision or a design decision that has driven a ton of what this thing physically looks like is the um, the fact that we wanted to have this this blind mated cabled backplane so that we can you know insert these compute nodes as as, as sleds into this into this rack. And you don't have to mess with any cabling. The cabling is is, is fixed in the rack. It, the rack comes will come with all cubbies um, wired up, and you simply insert a server into the slot, and it mates with the network, the high speed like this 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 high capacity network as well as the management network and the and the the, the, the power telemetry network, um, all without you having to plug in anything. Um, but in order to do that, we needed to make some decisions. We basically needed the ASIC to sit very close to the, the rear of the chassis because we wanted to. Because we're, if you want to hit these speeds, you're you're going to run into losses in the cable and losses in connectors, and you, there's only so much link, so much electrical budget you have, so much loss budget you have, and and so far you can get these signals to still, you know, be within the. Uh, Within the loss uh, limits, and so, so then the, the ASIC needed to move to the back of the chassis, which is also non-standard. A lot of these ASICs are more towards the front because that's where usually the ports are. Um, 
And so we have these these connectors. One of the pictures I showed in the in the thread has these connectors broken out on the bottom of the board because the board is floating in the chassis, so that we have access to these ports on the, on the bottom. And so we can have sixteen of them connected to the backplane, and we can build this cabled backplane that will let you blind mate into it. And then sixteen more are brought to the front, and there's a second secondary PCB that sits there with QSFP cages on it. Um, where these cables uh, attach these cages, and then so you can insert you know, your regular uh, optical modules. And, and these flyover cables, I think, are kind of amazing. Actually, I mean, just in terms, of, I thought that was like, as we as you were wading in, in terms of dealing with this loss, dealing with all this PCB, and discovering that actually we've got these. I mean, because that's the kind of the use case they're designed for as well. They seem to be a great fit. Yeah, because it turns out that the PCB material that you make this these boards out of. Uh, is actually pretty lossy. Even the really expensive material is um, is running signals through these tightly extruded copper cables is much more efficient than running it through a printed circuit board. How no matter how well you design that printed circuit board, and so the the, the challenge with this design has been to get the get the signals from the ASIC from the BGA balls of the ASIC as quickly as we can into these connectors so that because once once we enter into these connectors and we we try and make these transitions through these connectors as as low as low loss as we can make them once you're in the twin x the the loss numbers are not nearly as bad so you can you can have a longer cable run or you can go further with these signals than uh, you can through a PCB and so that has driven a ton a lot of this design has been has been trying to get these traces to be as short as we can um, and, and make this a, a, get as, as little loss as we can have so that we can reach the service at the top of the rack and the bottom of the rack. And then do you want to explain, and I think I mean, you, you explained it in passing, but just to emphasize why it's called sidecar, what the origin of that is? Well, the sidecar was because it is a sidecar to a compute node. It's like it's like the compute node is a motorcycle, and the sidecar is this externally connected thing that hangs off on the side. That's why we started calling it sidecar. Well, uh, but it's also a beautiful double entendre because uh, the the server is called Gimlet. Yes, and side sidecar is both that off of the motorcycle, but also another beverage. Yes. All of the drink. But the, the Gimlet, was act, that was chosen because we ha- already had this sidecar name. And so we needed another beverage to go with that. So that's that, right. That was where, that, that, that's, so yeah. we, will have li- we will have drink-inspired systems, I guess, going forward. It's uh, interesting to see what we're going to call Generation Two of the computer. It'll, it'll be a very boozy launch party. Very boozy <laughs> launch party. I know. And I feel that was all credit due to Kate on that one, where she was, uh, and, and we felt that she should be naming Gimlet because she was very actively involved in leading the charge on that. And I think she was the one who made the observation like, "Well, actually, sidecar's a, a drink, so maybe." This- funny story. Funny, funny story about the sidecar, though. I'd never had a sidecar, and so when we were recently in in at our our. Uh, manufacturing partner to do bring up of our, our compute boards we we had a, a dinner and that the the place where we were actually served really proper cocktails like really good cocktails and they had a sidecar on the menu as one of their specials so of course i had to try that and that did not disappoint so i'm looking forward to <laughs> nice. uh, i'm looking forward to the lunch party <laughs> exactly the, the more sidecars in the future i'm not sure i've ever had a sidecar actually 
Um, so then, then talk about the management network too, because this was a, this was going to was an issue. I mean, this is an issue of complexity anyway. You slice it, where we've got these service processors. So the the problem is that we've got the the host CPUs, and they are our AMD CPUs. They're going to talk over this cable backplane, but you also need to connect the service processors to one another somehow. Um, and Ryan, maybe talk about that, about that dilemma because a lot of the the challenge here. Or, or some of the challenge anyway, is dealing with, with that network. Sure. So, you know, because you, you want an out-of-band management interface so that when the host CPU or when your operating system are running on that host CPU is not operating or configured the way you need it to, that, that main link will not come up. And so you need some way to brought these systems uh, outside of that. And so... There have been some attempts to uh, so all these all these uh, all these NICs that you can purchase uh, have these extra interfaces NCIS uh, interfaces, um, and we looked at that initially. So that basically lets you basically have a side channel. Then the, the, your your network interface, your network your 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 NIC is actually not just one network interface. It's actually a little switch, and there's a one gigabit gigabit port on the side that you can connect another system to um, and that that port can be up independent of the main port the main uh, uh, Mac for the that, that you connect to your network and so you can build a little side channel in the same using the same cabling so effectively your NIC is not a NIC but it's a little switch a little two port switch um, which sounds great looking... what's the catch <laughs> well the catch is that these things are designed it's not entirely clear who controls what and when. And so it, it, one of the things that we struggled with was what happens if the OS wants to reset the NIC? Whatever, what happens if we need to power cycle that NIC for whatever reason because it got jammed up? Like the firmware in the, because all these things run elaborate amounts of firmware. Uh, what if we need to power cycle this thing? Well, in that case, your, power, your, your management network link is going to go down as well, which means that your board, your, the service processor, your board management function does not have a network uh, attached to it. And so you now lose the ability to do this out-of-band thing. You, could, you might potentially not be able to connect at all. And so urged by Rick, we, we, we did look at, okay, we, let's build another switch into this network, like into this rack. We'll have a separate switch ASIC or a separate switch. Initially, we were talking about a you know, little 24 port or whatever uh, rack switch. Um, well, it turns out the 24 ports was not enough. So then we started looking because we wanted to have 32 servers and then you know, things spiraled quickly out of control from there. So we ended up with this quite elaborate um, industrial Ethernet switch from microchip um that we can that is on this board that has so we have a completely separate set of links that we can control separate from the main switch and that is that is our that is a dedicated um segment that we can use for out of band management tasks and so all these concerns are separate the the, the service processors have their own link that can the, the host operating system cannot interfere with these links simply because they're 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 they're, trans, they're invisible they can't get there and so that that is a that is a layer of, of robustness or resilience that we can add that we added in this way, um, specifically the, because I had had done research in the past of finding exploits in network card firmware where the host could intercept NCSI traffic and do nasty things. So we wanted to make sure that we had acknowledged that that was a, a thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so NCSI is, I mean, the, 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 Arian is calling it a side channel and it is practically in the, in the name. Um, so this is a sideband interface. And well, but it, it really is really, I was pretty disappointed when we, dis- when we decided not to do it because it, it, it now added all this extra cabling and yeah. it now added all this extra complexity. And I wasn't, I had to grieve a little bit over the fact <laughs> that I had to add it to the, to, to the system. And I, I think ultimately it is the right choice to make, but it was definitely a, I, I was still very much in camp NCSI and, and, you know, let's try and just make it work. Let's, let's work with one of these vendors and just get it, get it done. Well, it feels so much simpler. Of course, we all had our, our, you know, everyone had their own NCSI horror stories, but, and, and Rick definitely came in with a, with a, with a bunch of new ones as well. And I, I mean, and I didn't have any, so I, because I never used. Oh really? Them, so oh okay, I, you had. I, no, oh okay. I, I, was, I was still, I was still positive. Was still <laughs> That's really right. <laughs> and I think Rick was just like, no, just no, not again, no, no. I've been, I, and Rick, I mean, you, you've really seen this thing be. I mean, I think we all had to a certain degree, but I feel like you had the, uh, had just seen different dimensions of how sideways this can go. And then you've got no control over it. Is the problem when that thing misbehaves? You've got very little insight into why you're trying to deal with an opaque firmware that you don't have the source code to, that it, it can be, these, these problems can be very transient, it can be really nasty. Yeah, I mean, there, there was all sorts of implementation issues um, and just getting it to behave correctly. But then there's also the whole, it's it's part of a, a surface area, a, a tax surface of the system that isn't particularly well thought through. Um, a lot of the, you know, BMC style management functionality just kind of got tacked on to PC systems. And and this is one area where you have to really scrutinize exactly how that's implemented inside of the NIC to know whether you actually have a isolation between your management network and, and your host system. Um, and what happens in a case where you have a malicious host? Uh, you know, these are circumstances you don't want to have to ever experience, but it's also things that you need to look through and consider and assess. And unfortunately, many of the NICs, the host owns the device. And that, that's sort of a flipped ownership model from what you would hope for. And, and we, I mean, we really were hoping, I think, and of course, hope is not a strategy, but hoping we could make NCSI work. And it was not helping NCSI's case that we were asking very detailed questions about the implementation and getting back more or less crickets, even from the, the most forthcoming vendors. Um, we're, 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 okay. uh, we're like, oh, yeah, we're exposed to the time. It's like, okay, wait, no, can you, we've got a lot of yeah, follow, it, details all clear up. that. It was clear that all this stuff is is designed somewhat not as an afterthought per se, but it is definitely not the main course yeah. when they design yeah. these devices. And so that did not inspire confidence that that we were going to get out of this what we really need. Because it, 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 yeah, if, it, as Rick points out, if you, if it slips up and it just it is not designed properly, you're exposed now, and you can't you can't fix it because it's it's kind of there. So you design it in. So we don't have one switch; we have two. <laughs> on on just that that one board has two switches on it um, that that are each complicated devices in their own right. So I mean, you've had your hand up for a while. Do you want to jump in here with a question? Yeah, I just wanted to. Um, it, it's worth noting that 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 pattern of, of having a separate switch in a large box that has many systems 
um, is also something that you see in routers in big you know chassis routers where each line card is a, you know a system on its own with its own CPU it boots an operating system so if you look at a like a big juniper router for example is yes you do have a separate switch and a separate management network and if it's designed cor correctly the user the customer never gets to put any systems on there but it is an ethernet switch at the end of the day yeah right, right. I, I I never I use them as uh before I worked here in Silicon Valley, I was I was back in the Netherlands and I, I worked on some of these systems, these systems from Cisco and Juniper. And so I, you're right, you don't see that it's hidden from you as the as the as the end user. Um, and it wasn't actually until after we've we'd already done high level design of this thing, and we so happened to be one of the one of the electro engineers that we worked with on this project uh, actually was at. at um, uh, foundry networks for a while and where they also did these large switches and, and he when I when I first explained what we were building and I sketched what this was going to look like he's like oh that's exactly what we built then and it, it, it worked the same way it had a 100 gig, 100 megabit uh, management interface separate from the like on the line card there was a, there was a board processor on the line card that that you know managed power etc for the line card and then and then there was even a third because there's actually a little third network hit here that is really like a serial link, but then we're doing some things with differential signaling and 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 it, to make it a little look a little bit more like what we're doing with the rest of these signals, so that the the, the wiring makes sense. Um, that is driven by an FPGA, and even that apparently is done by these large uh, chassis vendors um, because you need you need to power cycle these 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 um, uh, these line cards, even when the board controller might not might be jammed up and not not responsive, and so there's there's sort of a third sort of power button and a bunch of low level status that you want out of these things, where you need you need an out of band management network for the out of band management network. And, that's... <laughs> and, and Jason, did you have a question? Were you trying to get in earlier? Yeah, um, my uh, question was really around uh, the custom firmware, custom E4 discussion, but I may have dropped off at the wrong time there with my client. Um, it's just that you've got, of course, then the potential to run sort of SDN-style customization on the uh, management uh, node that you're connecting by PCIe. So I was looking forward to when that discussion was kind of launched. And uh, was that part of what I missed there? We didn't really get into that, so if you want to get into that, we can we can we can address that now. Well, yeah, I mean, just the the P four layer. If you think about it in terms of getting a merchant silicon switch which does SDN, that would be hidden from you in a you know standard white box switch like you were talking about for the hyperscalers. But you would still then get SDN as a customization layer on top of that. Um, and I was wondering, yeah, there's sort of a a kind of tension there between where you want to implement what. But another question about um, if you want to do SDN, you want to have, I'm guessing, as a non-kind of network engineer guy, you want to have low latency response from the management node that is actually hooked to this thing. So were you going to be running the control plane stuff in the hypervisor base uh, operating system or as a VM and kind of do good tricks to get really low interrupt latency into a VM? Um, 
so yeah, so this because this device is connected to just any of our rack switches, we will be running that software, or us, or any of our compute nodes. We will be running that software on these compute nodes. It it, it is still a little bit in the air. So there's there's a component of there's this immediate ASIC that needs attention over PCI Express because that's just the way that you manage this ASIC. So that is fixed to the node, like that has to run on the machines that we are connecting these to. So that's there's no negotiation there. Whether or not we want to have the SDN function live somewhere else, that's up to us because we can basically any any the traffic that the switch doesn't know what to do with, you 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 direct that to what they call the CPU board. And that CPU board in this case is any of our can be any of our our our, our servers, and then we would ha- we are implementing uh, a piece that can pick up those packets and then process them accordingly. Um, whether that runs directly on the host or in a VM is still to be decided. Um, we, I, I don't, I'm not actually sure that the that the latency. I'm not too concerned actually about latency, but I might be proven wrong there. Well, I guess. Um, um, yeah, at NCI, they did a trick where they wanted multiple luster endpoints on one host because they had enough PCI cards in a luster router box that they actually wanted to be able to do multiple luster routers inside one box. So they were running, mm-hmm. they actually virtualized the luster router uh, and then they did tricks to basically get the, late, the interrupt latency down on the Luster router VMs uh, so that it, it wasn't being, it was, uh, you know, basically good enough so that it was like running it on the bare metal uh, of the machine, but you just got two of them. But Net- Intel had a, I haven't been, I've been out of this space for a bit, but Intel had a thing about network function virtualization where I think the, there was a default assumption in hypervisors that if you do an M weight or something like that, one of these, or, you know, wait for something to happen, as a VM, you must be wanting the control taken away from you because you can rob Peter to pay Paul and run another VM in that time. Whereas if you want minimum interrupt latency, you want to deliver the interrupt straight down into the VM and have it go as quickly as possible, not need to be redispatched from the hypervisor. And um, mm-hmm. they got around that at NCI with um, basically the whole machine basically acts like a big resistor anyway because that's what HPC does. It just turns you know current and voltage into a thermal... <laughs> Energy and 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 bits and, and and an I/O bandwidth problem. Um, but the thing is that they were actually running those um, uh, guest VMs doing the routing with uh, a spin type uh, idle rather than a um, primitive that was trapping to the VM, uh, trapping to the hypervisor. Well, we we can. One of the options we for certainly have is we these the AMD CPUs we're using have have a significant number of cores, so we can always dedicate you know the number of cores that we we can we can dedicate number of uh, a number of cores to this. Yeah, yeah. And then you can spin run on these. You can you can just will own that core effectively. And so as long as the single as long as the number of cores that we have. Either that be a single core or multiple cores. If you can meaningfully multi-thread that that um, that workload, uh, that might that might just be uh, yeah. the way the way to go. 
Yeah, well, Intel was definitely sort of saying, well, if you want a network function virtualized in a VM, you are not interested in, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're actually just interested in managing the complexity of having, uh, you know, network stack inside of VM rather than just and being able to then split them out and have multiple of them if you so choose rather than have um, it all just running in the base kernel. So, yeah, uh, it just seems like something where the hypervisor uh, authors seem to have been making some assumptions of why would you want to do that? And so we're sort of fighting that, but it's probably changed since I was looking at that. The good thing is that we have the flexibility to do this. If we if we need to run it directly on the on the uh, you know in the yeah. main OS, we can. Uh, if we if we because we control that layer as well. And if we if we want to run it in a in a, we we can run it in a in a you know traditional in a, in a zone of of sorts. Um, so uh, or in a full full featured VM. Um, I we're not definitive on what that needs to look like. So are you talking, I mean, in terms of the, the software side of this, um, I love the simulator that we've got. I feel like the the, the, the tooling that we've gotten on the Tofino is yeah, really well, interesting. Well, what was really impressive is that with the SDE that Intel provides you for this device comes a, um, it's, a, it's a simulation model they have extracted from the actual RTL that they designed the system with or the, the ASIC with. And so you get a, 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 a simulation model that can run a P4 program. So you, and it actually, the driver, it's only the lowest level of the driver that real, that, that attaches to either your, your real V, your real PCI express device or to this, to this, um, to the simulation model. And so the entire driver stack and runtime that, that they've built that you use um, runs on top of this, uh, knowing that it is not actually the physical device. And the physical and the, the simulation model can actually be mapped onto um, real interfaces. And so you can you can simulate a a, a uh, Tofino based system using a regular box with a couple of NICs, and you can um, you can write a P4 program and then run that program. And you can you can trace every step. You can you can see how the parser in the pipeline works, how your packet is extracted, like how the the data is extracted, and then as it travels through these match action pipelines, it will log exactly to whatever to certain levels of granularity configurable to, by what you need. It will log what's happening, and it will actually put these these packets out into virtual virtual Linux interfaces. And so you can actually build a smaller version that can process, you know. A couple thousand, yeah, a couple yeah, thousand. Yeah, uh, actually, box, you get a, you get a couple thousand packets per second because this is this is an actual like like this is a proper RTL model. So it is. It, it, I'm not quite. I'm not sure if it's quite cycle accurate, but it is close enough for 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 purposes of this that uh, that it that it is. And so you, yeah, it, it's 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 absolutely very slow. You're not you're never going to deploy that as a quote unquote software switch because it's it that just doesn't work. Um, but in terms of development, it's amazing because it's amazing, yeah. we've we've been working on this hardware platform for a year, but Nils on our team has been writing software for this for just as long, even though we've ne- we, we 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 didn't have hardware in hand until we didn't even have a development platform from them until I don't know, like a couple of months ago. Um, and so we've already been we've already been able to build significant amounts of pieces of infrastructure with just the simulation model by running the model in a VM with a couple of other VMs attached to it, simulating a network. And so that, that has been and quite, it, quite good. It's worth saying too, the, the, the development vehicle we got for this thing is in a very traditional switch form factor. 
and got our poor colleague Josh Kuo is like rediscovering what he's like this stuff the, the software that's not to you know that's on this thing is uh not pleasant to deal with <laughs> yeah because there's a full featured bmc and everything right. there i the number of times josh has been like we really need to start a computer company and solve this problem poor josh <laughs> I, i'm sorry josh <laughs> josh has been uh but the the simulator has been amazing and i think that you when you're doing hardware software co-design it is really, really important that you find ways to unhook that software engineering from the hardware engineering, and that's been a really good one for us, I feel. I mean, all, all credit no, to I, Intel. What, what, what's, what's great is that the, the Barefoot team recognized that same philosophy of hardware-software co-design because nowadays, when, taping out an ASIC like this takes months, like six months at least, from getting masks made to actually getting the silicon done and and getting it you know the wafer cut up and packaged and and the first set of tests before it is in your lab you're you're quickly looking at at six months nine months sometimes and so being able to unblock your your um your software engineering team that needs to build an, an, an sdk for this thing force your customers to go and build applications on top of being able, for them to be able to do that on the actual RTL model that is that is as close as, as, as sort of is needed, um, that is, it's hugely valuable because and but what what makes it kind of cool is that they decided to expose it to the customers as well so that the customers can can work with this thing um, as they are spinning up their hardware or or as the silicon becomes available. Yeah, it's one of those things that right three things validated the, the direction we've gone. Um, Thomas, you had your hand up. Yeah, I was wondering how this switch fits in with the whole trust model, if it's controlled by one of your uh, VM hosts. So the, the the board has has the same root of trust and, and board control the service processor that we have on our main computing system. And so we're using the same, essentially the same foundation that we're using for our host CPUs uh, to build this, this chain of trust. We can do the we do the same with this board. Um, and that brings us that that will allow us to boot pretty much into the uh, so we can bring up the, the 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 management network switch that that is part of the service processor uh, software payload, and so we have some we can we can gain some confidence that this thing is running the intended the management network is running the intended configuration, and then the service processor will then uh, initiate power on reset for the Tofino ASIC, and that's, that then attaches over PCI Express to one of our compute nodes that has the the driver and the payload, the P4 program uh, for the switch. And then once that thing is on PCI, uh, once PCI Express is up, the the ASIC is now firmly under control of the um, uh, of that that host CPU. So whatever trust we have in the host CPU in that compute node, in its integrity of the the software it runs. That would now extend into the program and the control plane that is now execute that is now controlling the main data flow for this for this device. And then all of that software uh, will be open, so you'll be able to to know exactly all the software that, that that's executing all the way up to that that chain of trust. And the fact that it's the same service processor root trust as we're using on the compute node, it makes really simplifies the system. Um, which is, you know, it's it's nice because there's so many things that have, that have complicated the system um, necessarily. So we believe that it's it's really nice, you know, these things that actually simplify it by reusing some of these components. Yeah, having a couple of these now 
more quote unquote standard building blocks that we've more or less arrived at does make it a little bit more tractable because if we had to design yet more pieces for this, this would have taken so much longer. And teaser, we are open sourcing our the the operating system hubris. We're open sourcing that tomorrow with Cliff Biffle's talk at OSFC. We're very excited about that. Sorry to, so the, to butt in without putting my hand up. I don't actually know how to put my hand up in this app. <laughs> no problem, Edward. Go ahead. What's up? <laughs> so just a question on, on failure domains. So it, sound, it sounds like one of the compute nodes is special. Um, so, you know, what, what happens when that compute node fails? And then the secondary question is, what happens if you, you load a bad people program on the switch? Um, have you cut yourself off from, from fixing it? Or do you have a separate connection to, to one of the nodes? I'm sure you've thought of these things, but you know these are things that are bugging me hearing hearing what I've heard so far. So there's uh, the first layer of sort of redundancy here is that we have two switches in the rack. So that's that's where we that's where we start. So if if one if one switch slash node fails, we still have another one available, um, and it is up to us to. So our underlay our our overlay network that we're using to actually ship ship VM traffic around will be able to deal with one of these switches going away. Um, if the node itself fails, it depends a little bit on how it fails, but the, the Tofino can actually run disconnected uh, from, P like PCI Express can go away. You can you can reset the PCI Express peripheral in the ASIC independent of, of the data fabric that this thing has. And so we can actually, well, this is still to be. We, we still have to validate. All this, <laughs> we still have to power this thing on. We've been, we've been, we've been promised <laughs> that right. you can you, you can reboot you can reboot the node and you can pick up the PCI Express link and pick up state out of the ASIC in such a way that you can continue running and that you don't have to cycle the ASIC, which was one of the things that was a pain point that the that the Broadcom ASICs we used uh, at Facebook because a, a a reset of the of the SDK meant that you had to reset the ASIC, which at that point meant that you would interrupt all the traffic through the data plane. Um, now the catch is that you, at that point, once the, when, when the host goes away, you can't program the tables anymore that this thing uses to, um, to, con to, to manipulate the traffic flows. So what will happen is that existing flows will keep running, but other, other like the more SDN fun like the more steering functions, like let's say that you're doing network at, uh, like NATS, you do the address translation here you can't establish new sessions. So this is where then the other switch would have to take over and we would have to detect that this situation is happening and we would that's what the out-of-band management network would be used for to adequately then uh, uh, make sure that the that the hosts know to go through the other, other switch because effectively every host in our network, because we run these switches independent, every host... Um, using uh, ECMP and some, some other trickery will be able to decide individually which, which switching path to take. And so we can, we can direct traffic the other way, uh, but existing flows will, will, will continue and we can, we can, we could then migrate those flows off if we, if we wanted to. So there's a, there's a possibility for a graceful degradation. It's up to us to go and implement it. And some of that will exist in the, at the very very beginning of our product, and some of that will be refined over time as we learn better how to control this thing. Does that make sense? It is, it is no worse though than the than an existing one U switch that you have in your rack that has a Xeon D on a little socket, like a little daughter board plugged into this board. 
because that thing can also can can fail in the, exactly the same way as our uh, as our compute nodes would fail. Um, so, I'd, in terms of failure domains, I would I would consider those somewhat equivalent at, from a hardware perspective. Now, our compute node runs maybe a lot more software than the dedicated management CPU in the chassis for for most of these off the shelf so these wide level switches do. Um, so yeah, there's more, there's more chance for failure there. And, and as, as insofar as loading a wrong P4 program, we will have to build, you know, the continuous integration capability and testing capability to make sure that we just don't ship broken P4 programs. There will have to be a process by which these are vetted and, you know, tested before they go out in, in, in updates to customers. Well, this is where the simulator is huge, right? To be able to, we've got lots of things we can go do. Yeah, that will, that will be a combination of simulation work, but also obviously actual racks that we will, that we will run these on before software updates are blessed and go out. And this is where that, that earlier discussion around having multiple P4 programs, like if we have to build, if we're going to build, be build, building P4 programs for every customer, that will quickly spiral, spiral out of control. So I, I don't think we can, but we might be able to do different verticals or, or you know, at some point. But the, the, a part of that is our ability to build up enough automation to appropriately test all these things because simulating a network because you you can't just simulate or run with one rack we will have to do we will have to rely even on more network simulation than just a a a model of the switch we will have to figure out what happens in routing scenarios if you're running you know multi-rack situations tens hundreds of racks uh, multiple multiple az's what does what does that thing kind of look like how does the how do these uh these these failure models work and how do we make sure that whatever we build for that you know, every release works as intended. So yeah, we'll have to build a lot more simulation capability. A lot of fun software to build for sure. Uh, well, I mean, this has been awesome. Um, it, the, I mean, it's, congratulations to you and everyone who has worked on this. This is a, a big, aggressive, I mean, as we, we have joked, I, I can't remember, Adam, how frequently we've joked about it here, but um, Oxide is nine startups within a startup, and this is definitely one of them, maybe two of them. Um, and I, I mean, the fact that that you and team pulled this off—you got some serious curveballs and route that you managed to field. And uh, I mean, it's just—it's incredible to see. And I think it's beautiful. And and then I think it's just great that the the artifact. There's this great aesthetic beauty to, uh, to to going back to what you originally tweeted to the artifact there. And I knew, I mean, you, you and I had had a conversation before you tweeted it, and I told you like this thing is going to be people are going to really gravitate to this because it's it's beautiful and it's sophisticated and it's impressive it's it's a lot of fun to see yeah it's easy to when you're neck like knee deep or waist deep or even neck deep in the <laughs> engineering to try and make this thing work to forget about the uh sort of the 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 art aspects or 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 even to uh, i, I like to, to marvel at the time scales at which this is happening. Uh, because on the one hand, you hear numbers like 12 terabits per second, 6 billion packets per second. But then on the, uh, the, on the other end of the scale, there's a clock generator that is generating clocks for this, for this chip that has a, that has a, a th- 150 femtosecond jitter, uh, uh, worst case jitter. And so with the right, with the right you know, oscillators, et cetera, for that, selected for that. And so the... Uh, you're going from, you know, 
billions to to picoseconds or like yeah nanoseconds picoseconds and femtoseconds and that that is because when we're talking about these these traces and the, and the, you're, you're talking about signals that propagate through this uh, you know in the hundreds of picoseconds um across the across the pcb and so it's 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 uh it's it's really cool like it, it's it, it's it's interesting to contemplate that sometimes it's it's an absolute marvel and uh yeah looking forward to getting our boards back as you as your tweet pointed out our boards are shipped and that are the uh, we shipped the collateral to our fab um and looking forward to bringing this thing up and on to the next chapter yeah, I don't know if. Well, I guess we can promise. We'll we'll put some pictures up. We we expect assembled systems in early January, so we'll we'll, we'll tweet a little bit more about as we as we as this thing comes together. And we are uh, hopefully don't blow any up. But Jesus Christ, this thing draws so much current. <laughs> <laughs> well, in those pictures, you'll see the silly the silly large heatsink that goes on top of this thing in order to keep it within the thermal envelope for the for the whole system. Um, which was a challenge in itself because the heatsink is so heavy that you need to really start thinking about shock and vibe as this thing needs to be transported. And, and this die, this chip has no heat spreader. It's open die directly exposed to that heatsink that might, you know, rattle along on top. So there's, there's, that, that's what I mean by so many details to get right in a pose. There's so many things that we had to, Adam, did you would, out. Would, would, were you clued in on that crisis at all? The moment arm crisis. Yeah the the uh, the the fact that it's running without, I mean that that it's right on top of it is pretty crazy. Well, and that the heatsink was so large that you get very concerned about the moment arm and the ability to crack the PCB because you actually have the, it is a galactic heatsink on top of this like this nuclear reactor postage stamp. That is, the, the, <laughs> yeah. and I understood that they send us like they, that. There are, uh, I guess, like sort of inert PCBs that they sent to to test some of the physical properties, so that when we crack something, we're not cracking the real PCB. Well, yeah, I mean, the, we, the real we're, chip. We're, we're doing some assembly uh, process development with uh, one or two actual PCBs that we're getting from the manufacturer to, for this purpose. To and then and then Intel has also shipped us. Um, and non-functional units that are, but that are mechanically sound, like mechanically the same as the as the actual thing, and so you you assemble a board with just the chip and then then on top, and then you can mount a heatsink, and then you yeah, you can do shock and vibe uh, tests, actually until the thing cracks, and so you can you can un, you can so just, so that you understand where the limit is when when do you start to damage this part, um, and then we can design you know enclosures and build sufficient specifications around it, uh, so that. In reality, this won't happen when we start shipping systems. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of these things that you just don't <laughs> really complexity. think about. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of complexity. A lot of things have to come together, um, and a long way to go too. We're really only at a way station here, um, so we've got a long way to go. I'm sure. Like we're, we're concerned about enough about this that the first boards are actually not shipping with the heat sinks on them because we just don't we just we just don't trust existing shipping services with our first prototypes. And so we will assemble the heat sinks on top in the office. Once the boards are, you know, there we validated that the power works that we don't have to, or we, we can try and do as hopefully there's not that much rework, but whatever rework we need to do to get these things to run and do that first before the heat sink goes up, goes on because it's like a almost three kilogram copper 
thing that sits on top. So it's it's makes the whole thing a lot less easy to handle. And so, but yeah. And we we might trust existing shipping services a little bit more if they would stop throwing our packages in the bushes. That's yeah, that would be nice. That would be uh, so. <laughs> those existing 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 shipping services, if you're listening, you're in control. Stop throwing our packages at us. And <laughs> but Aryan, awesome work. And again, uh, thanks again for for joining us today. Thanks for everyone for asking uh, like a lot of really interesting questions. And um, on to bring up. Looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. And uh, well, I, I try to listen in uh, from time to time. But... Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks. Right. Great, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Yep. Good night. Thanks. Happy Hanukkah.